So uh, here we are today, and we're uh, talking about David. When I say David, what comes to mind initially when I say David? Bible David. Bathsheba? Oh, sheep. Okay. I was like, wow, Bathsheba, she just said it. <laughs> okay, so uh, in the first service, we named all this stuff and no one said Bathsheba. I'm like, you're all afraid to say Bathsheba. Yeah, okay, so sheep. Yeah, of course, he's a shepherd. All right, so what else? Short. <laughs> More of you said short. All right, what else? King. King, shepherd, short. Psalms and Goliath. Did I miss one? Man of God's heart. Anything else? A worshiper. All right. What else? We get all right. Bathsheba. There it is. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Good dude right there. Yeah. All right. So we got we got a lot of David stuff covered. There's one major thing that we're missing about David right now. Major thing. It was the whole reason he couldn't build the temple. He was a warrior. This guy had blood all over his hands, man. This guy was like, you know, he he's a fighter. He's a fighter. And, uh, and so he's a warrior for God. He was a worshiper for God. He was a songwriter for God. He was a king for God. He was a shepherd for God. He was a prime time sinner. Man, this dude knew how to sin in style. You know, he knew how to get it done. And he also was broken. When I look, I was thinking through this and I was thinking about David. Um, and, and looking back at the life of David, I was thinking about how in, in our society, what do we have that compares to David? And there's, a, yeah, obviously there's not one person who compares to David. David had so many, he was so multifaceted in his walk with God that you have to name all sorts of people in our society that would look, kind of have like Dave, Davidic characteristics, okay? So the first is he had dirt under his fingernails um, from working on the farm. So your average American tough guy farmer who puts his nose down and gets it done and works day in and day out. In the Super Bowl last year, there was some commercial about the American farmer. Did anyone see that? It was an incredible commercial. Such, it was one of the best Super Bowl commercials I've ever seen about hardworking American farmers. You know, and uh, David was one of them. Hardworking farmer. You know, day in, day out, staying up all night with the sheep. You know, all that. He was also a prophetic songwriter. He wrote prophetic songs that spoke into the community and spoke about God in ways that were radical. Now, these names don't necessarily all have the heart of, of, of David, you know. But if you think about people like Bono from U2 or Bob Dylan, people who can speak about what's going on around them in terms of God stuff or whatever in a way that everyone's like, whoa, that was profound music. David had the ability to write music like that. It was just incredible music. And um, D- David had this ability to care for sheep, to care for people. He had that shepherd's heart, you know, a real soft heart. He was kind of like, uh, if you're a fan of church history at all, St. Francis Assisi. You ever see the picture of him where he's standing there with his arms out and there's like birds all over him and animals all over him because he's just a lover of God, a lover of people, a lover of animals. And that's the way David was. And and when you think about David, he was a risk taker, crazy risk taker. I mean, this guy, he was like crocodile hunter had nothing on him. You know what I mean? People climbing Mount Everest, nothing on David. I mean, like David was, he was crazy, this guy. And, uh, you know, another thing about him is he was, he was just passionate man passionate man any birds fans in here eagles fans in here we had a we had a recent free safety who left and then retired and now is on espn anybody know who that is 
Dawkins, Brian Dawkins, one of the most passionate men in football. Every morning, every time the Eagles would go to play, he'd get the whole place fired up because he was so passionate about his play. You know, we, and uh, so David had kind of that kind of aura about him where he could get you fired up and get you going. Um, he was a fierce warrior. What about the warrior side of him? I mean, we're talking special forces, extraordinary. When you hear the stories about what David and his guys did, Man, those guys were insane. Just a couple of them going against thousands of guys, man. It was crazy what they could do. A gladiator, special forces. He was one of those guys, you know. And um, he was also a revolutionary. But not a, his revolutionary stuff wasn't the military stuff. His revolutionary was in submissive stuff. He was like Nelson Mandela. That's what he was like. He knew how to submit to a king so bad that it changed the whole kingdom. He knew, he knew, how, to, he knew how to just... Be quiet, be still, and let God be in such a way that would just change the world. You know, like Nelson Mandela. He was also, like we said, a crazy sinner. I mean, like, if you think, think of the televangelist or the megachurch pastor that you know of who fell from grace or whatever, you know, fell from that spotlight. Like, he was that guy plus Tiger Woods, uh, you know, plus Richard Nixon, plus whatever, you know, like all of the prime time failures that you see and you take their sins and you probably make it worse because he was also like murderer on top of it and all that stuff. And that's David, you know, and um, you think about about he's the king upon which all other kings were judged. All other kings. So like president in America, this would be like Abraham Lincoln or something. You know, he's like the Abe Lincoln. You know, that's, they would look back at him like he's that guy, you know. And then you think about in that songwriting, he just wasn't a prophetic songwriter. He was a worship leader. And you know what's amazing? You can listen to Chris Tomlin's songs or Matt Redman's songs or songs from whatever the worship leaders are that you like. And you know what songs they're singing? David's songs. This, the lyrics they use, so much of them are still David's songs. That's all they do. They pull from the Psalms and they put music to it because David's still the best worship leader we've ever seen. You know, he's like, it's, it's incredible. And, and what's amazing about David, above all of that, I think, one of the most amazing things about the life of David, it's, it's not all of that. It's that when he sinned, and he sinned so big time that he actually owned his sin publicly in front of any, everyone, and he was contrite about it. He owned it. He asked for forgiveness, and then he moved on. And when I went to think about who in our society represented that, I had a really, really hard time finding that. Maybe it's what set David apart, you know, broken man before God. There's a few. There's people who own their stuff, you know. There, there, there's a few um, who have – Chuck Colson was involved in that whole Nixon thing, you know. He had to own that and kind of take steps forward, and God's done an amazing thing there. You know, uh, there, there's a few who have really owned it and stepped forward. But it's amazing. David was a man after God's own heart. Think Billy Graham. Add, just add that tag on there. Or Mother Teresa. Or, you know, add one of those big name of people who's like, whoa, that person's a God chaser. Tag that on to all the Abraham Lincoln, all the warrior, all the worship leader, all that. And it was in one man. One man. You know how many people we just named? All contained in one man. That's a spectacular thing. That that man lived life to that full. You know? 3,000 years, we look back at David and we can stare at that and be like, holy cow, man. 3,000 years ago, this man lived, and the book that he wrote of the Bible is the biggest book of the Bible. And there's as much written about him as any other character in all of the scriptures except for Jesus. You know, 
That's, that's amazing how much is written about this guy. And 3,000 years ago, we're still talking about how he took down that giant. You know, no one said Goliath when I asked David. Everyone, usually that's the first thing everyone says. But like, hey, you know, it's amazing. We look back. But here's the funny thing about David. Here's the crazy thing. When he was a little guy, no one saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming. Not at all. You know, he was this lion heart that defines so much of Scripture, defines so much of our walk with God, defines so much of our understanding of God, is defined by the life lived in this man as God lived through him. And yet when he was this little guy, no one saw it. That blows my mind. I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind. Because if you see some little rocket scientist kid, you see him, you're like, yep, he's going to be smart. You know, and you see some kid who can tear it up on the ball field and you're like, yeah, you see this little little girl who it's like she can command authority and get kids cracking and make them get it done. You're like, watch out for that girl, you know, and, you know, that all this, you know, and you can see stuff in kids. But it seems like with David wasn't like that. Wasn't like that when they had the party. We'll see today. He didn't even get invited. You know, there's there's least likely to succeed. So what took a little kid? who was your average little kid out on the hill and made him all of that, all of that. That's what our series is about. The early years of King David, growing the lion's heart. What did it take? How did it get there? You know, and so that's what we're looking at. All right. Now, today we're going to start at the very beginning, and that's in 1 Corinthians 16, the very beginning of of where David really enters the story here. Um, And I'm going to give you a little perspective before I read it of what's going on in Israel. You remember the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the race of Israel was birthed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the nation of Israel was not birthed until many years later after brutal slavery. And when they were brought up out of that slavery, they they became a nation under the leadership of one incredible leader. And who was that? Moses. Okay. Yeah. Moses. All right. And so then, um, there's, there was uh, one who came after Moses and I heard this great lyric, these great lyrics about, uh, this song, this singer songwriter wrote a song from the, from the, uh, perspective of Joshua. And it says, Joshua sat those people down. He said, I ain't no Moses, but I ain't no clown. And yeah, I know that river's wide, but if you follow me, we'll make it to the other side. You know, and uh, I, I love those lyrics because there's this picture of the letdown from Moses to Joshua. And yeah, I know they crossed the Red Sea and we're only crossing a Jordan River. But hey, God's got a plan for us. And this is what I have to offer. And if you follow me, God will get us there. And between those two great leaders, God did spectacular things in establishing the nation of Israel in the, the geography of the place we still call Israel today. You know, and God established them as a nation. Now, coming off of that, it started this whole period after Joshua, this crazy period of, of Israelite history. And that's the period of the judges. And you know what that looked like? That looked like the Wild West. That's what it was. It was straight up Wild West. You, you know the phrase of, of the book of Judges? It says, each man did what was right in his own eyes. You know, justice was in their own hands. Gunslingers everywhere, man. Like, you know, I, I'm going to do what's good by me, get into my property, and it's going to be trouble. And it was just, it was kind of chaos, you know. And it was just, you see up and down, these leaders rise and fall, and no one can unite the kingdom and all of that. And they were supposed to be a, a theocracy, a people who were under the governance of God, where God is their leader and God is their ruler. And the judges just kind of help them stay connected to God. But there's no unifying king over the whole thing. And eventually, 
eventually what happens is the people of Israel get antsy because things aren't working out well. And when things aren't working out well, they started to struggle. But in the midst of that, God had already had, he had a priest. First he had a priest, and this priest was named Eli. And I don't know if you remember about Eli. He was kind of so-so, you know. <laughs> he was he was trying to honor God, but it didn't work out well. And he didn't take care of us. He didn't make sure that he was shaping his family. And his kids were just trouble, trouble, trouble. And then God brings in this little boy. Hannah is, is a woman who, who shows up at the temple and she's a barren woman who can't have kids and she's all upset about it. And God gives her a, a, a son and she said that she would give the son back to God. So she drops him off at the temple and he shows up in the temple and he's, he's trying to sleep one night and God starts calling his name. And he doesn't know it's God. He thinks it's Eli. And then eventually Eli says, you know, go and answer. And Samuel says, here am I, Lord, you know, speak. And what happens? God raises up the greatest of all the judges. This guy, he's a prophet and he's a priest and he's a judge. He's not a king. He's not a king. And, and Israel learns to respect and fear Samuel because the mighty power of God that's behind him. But the, but the country's not unified and they're still not submitted to God. And they start to look around and see all the nations around them and they say, but we want a big, tough guy king who can fight against all the wars against all the guys around us. And so they start looking for a king. And at first, Samuel says, please, no, you don't want a king. That's not God's plan for you right now. You don't want a king. And they say, we got a problem. And we're going to fix that problem. And this guy over here is our solution to the problem. Okay? Have you seen Saul? Tall, warrior-looking guy who goes and hides behind the bags when he finds out that he's supposed to be king. You know? And, uh, and they think that they're going to find a solution to the problem. And what we find out is it doesn't work out. You know? It doesn't work out. God eventually relents and says, okay, you can have Saul as your king. And it starts off, it looks like it's going to be great. You know? It's a human solution to a human problem, which leads to more human problems every time. Because God had another plan. He had a divine solution, a God solution to a human problem, but they couldn't wait for it. They couldn't be patient. How many of you, you can raise your hand with me. Mine is already raised because I know the answer to this question and I am guilty. How many of you have tried to solve your human problems at times with your human solutions? If there is not a hand raised wait for fire from heaven to drop. Um, So, uh, yeah, we have struggled with this. This is our lack of faith. This is our lack of patience. This is our lack of God dependence. This is our lack of being Christ followers at times in our life. Is we got an issue, we want to, we try to keep up with the Joneses. We try to do whatever, we try to fix it. That's what Israel tried to do. And it caused chaos. In the middle of all of that, when it was like, God, build a nation, then it was wild west and there's craziness. And God tried to get people to worship him and they couldn't do it right. And then they yearned for a king. And finally, we're going to get a king. And King Saul comes in and it's worse than ever. And it's anticlimactic. In the middle of that, God says, all right, now it's time. Now it's time for me to do what it is that I wanted to do. Chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Is, Is Saul dead yet in this thing? Saul's not dead, but he's grieving. Why is he grieving? Because God's rejected him. He just told Saul three chapters ago that you are rejected by God because God told him to. Now he's grieving, and the reason he's grieving is because his heart is attached to Saul. He took Saul out of nothing, and he anointed him like he was told to, and he watched Saul, and he prayed for Saul, and he asked Saul to submit to God, but Saul didn't. And even though that wasn't God's first plan, Samuel still gave his heart to him and submitted to him. Pretty cool thing about Samuel. And it's so much so that his heart's grieving. Now, 
God says, it's time for you to get over it, buddy. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Bethlehem sound familiar? What's, what do we know about Bethlehem? That's where Jesus was born, in the city of David. They don't say city of David yet, do they? Don't you love how a place, it doesn't have an identity, it just has a name, but then after something big happens there, all of a sudden it has an identity? Like, whoever heard of Columbine or nickel mines until something terrible happened? But whoever heard of Bethlehem until it became the city of David? You know, that's pretty cool. There's no name place, and all of a sudden, everyone knows it as the city of David, okay? For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You hear that? Who God provide the king for? For himself. Who did he provide Saul for? The people. The people wanted a king. I'll give you your king. Here's your king. But he said, I'm done with providing kings for you guys. I'm providing a king for me this time. This is my guy. I'm putting him in place because he's not doing what you want him to do. He's going to do what I want him to do. So I'm going to put my guy in place. Okay? So he's chosen for himself a king among Jesse's sons. Verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Well, here Samuel is grieving over Saul because he feels so bad for him. And that, and yet if he goes and does something for God, Saul's going to cut his throat. You know, that's kind of how it gets when leaders get to that place where they're no longer serving the people and serving the kingdom, but instead they're, they're just trying to maintain their power. And, uh, so, so God says, okay, uh, And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. That's David's dad. And I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. I'm going to tell you and you're going to anoint my guy in that position. Okay, verse four. Samuel did what the Lord commanded him and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him with uh, trembling. Okay, so uh, two things. First of all, sometimes you get the picture this is only him showing up at David's house. It's not. The elders of the city are there. This is a, a little bit more of a public event than we often picture. And when the elders come out and see Samuel, they're trembling. Why do people tremble? Because they're afraid. Why are people afraid of Samuel? Saul might be one of the reasons. Yeah. There's probably even a bigger reason. God. He's the prophet. Okay. And, and Samuel is known to carry massive authority, massive authority. And why are people afraid? Oh, that more of us in America would be afraid at the coming of the word of God, that it would mean that much to us, that it would cause us to tremble. When we open up the pages of the word of God and the voice of God is about to speak to me, that I would tremble and quake and say, oh my, what does it say? Because this is the word of the Lord, you know? Um, and and I, I wish that we had a little bit more of that, actually, at times, where we had that kind of respect. So they say, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and say, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably? peaceably? Uh, he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice the Lord. And you can hear that just a, the, okay, good. And then he says, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Another thing in here, notice that when they went to worship the Lord, they consecrated themselves before they went to worship. When they came, they didn't come to church to get cleaned up. They came to church already cleaned up because they came to worship the Lord. You know, how I, what I do on Saturday night 
affects how I come to church on Sunday. How I come to love feast tonight is going to be term, determined by how I'm living my life throughout, throughout my life. You know? And so part of the reason why we say it's time to come to love feast, you know, go and forgive who you need to forgive. Get balances free. Don't come to the altar of the Lord. If you have problems with someone else, go and get that taken care of. The blood's already been shed for us. We don't have to do anything to earn God's favor, but we do have to make sure that we're allowing that blood to wash over us and we're receiving the forgiveness of God. And if we want our experience in worship to be all it can for God, then we got to get ourselves prepared for worship. You know, and that's what he's doing. Consecrate yourselves. Wash yourselves up. Don't be too tired to come to church. You know, don't be too, don't be too uh, distracted distracted because of all your other stuff to come to church. Now, granted, if if you can't get over it, just get into church, right? You know, like God's got grace and you just you crawl into church and you crawl into a, a place with God. But the, the more that we get ourselves ready ahead of time, the better it's going to be, okay? Um, now, the, the, so uh, now where are we here? What verse are we at? Consecrate yourselves. Verse 6, okay? When they came, he looked on Iliab, and thought, this is Samuel, he looks on the oldest son, and he looks on Eliab, and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. See what's happening here? He looks around and sees Eliab, and he's like, did you see that, dude? He is fierce. He would be an awesome king. You see how tall he is? That guy's totally shredded. He could take anybody, you know? Like, look at him. He's, he's crazy, you know? And, yeah, it's got to be the guy. And even Samuel, the Lord's prophet, hadn't learned his lesson yet. You know, we already got man's solution to man's problem equals more man's problems. And he walks in and he's like, man's solution. Man, did you see that dude? You know, and this is, of course, what the Lord says to him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. But the Lord, the, the, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay? And so God rejected not just Iliad, but God rejected human solutions to human problems. You know? And uh, so that's what he's rejecting. He said, that stuff doesn't work anymore. You guys can try to tell me what you need in order to deal with the Philistines. I'm going to tell you what you need in order to submit to me. Okay, and, and then my glory can go forward. And so he's saying all that stuff on the outside that you see, it doesn't mean anything. You, that what you see that you think is the picture of what's going to take care of stuff, it isn't the picture. I look on the, the inward. We might as well get used to it. God always does stuff in strange packages. You know, he always does. He, 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 like in First Corinthians, remember what? What Paul said when they were battling over who the great apostles were and all that. You remember that whole thing? And what did he say? He says, God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. You know? That's what he uses. God uses the messed up things to, to, to put us in our place. You know? And uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, he says again, God uses clay pots in order to reveal his glory. And we see the picture of Jesus who had no earthly appearance about him, nothing that we should look at him. He didn't make turn he didn't turn heads except for because people turned away from him and despised him and rejected him. Okay. So here we go. God rejected him. Now think about what this does to the to the egos of of David's brothers, okay? So God rejected him and then Jesse said to Abinadab made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse said to Shammah, pass by. 
And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Man, this is like going on uh, American Idol and being like, no, you know, <laughs> rejected. And um, they were all being rejected one by one. Okay. And then, uh, then Jesse, or let's see, then verse 10, uh, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. You know, seven's like the complete number, right? Everything that humanity has, bring it past me. No, 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 no. All the way down. Seven times, no. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Because <laughs> this isn't adding up, you know? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. That's just the shepherd kid, you know? And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And then he sent and brought him in. Now listen to this. Now he was Rudy and, his, and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Those beautiful eyes got him in trouble, by the way. Um, but he was Rudy. You know what that means? It means he was red. That's what it means. That means, okay, there was a whole bunch of guys who were there who were Hebrews, but then there was this one Irishman who came through. And, and God was like, I want the Irishman. That's what I always thought anyway. Maybe it's the Irish in me. I don't know. I'm just kidding, obviously. Um, but he, he was red. Maybe he was blushing. He probably also had red hair. You know, kind of had. And but he had beautiful eyes. And it does say he was handsome. You know, he wasn't like a terrible looking guy, but he was a short little guy. You know what he was? He was the cute little shepherd boy. He was the guy who, when the big warriors came back from battle, they said, "Hey, little guy, how you doing, David?" Gave him a little kick. You know, that's who he was. He was that guy who, like, all right, David, not now. You know, like he was that guy. Yeah, he was cute, cute little David, but a king? Are you kidding me? You know, like, have you seen Eliab? Did you see what Eliab can do in battle? That's your king right there. Little shepherd David, are you joking? You know, that's who he was. He was the runt. And he was cute enough, you know, but he's just this little cute kid, you know. That's who he was to them. And here's the moment. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. There's two things I want to point out here. And then we'll give the, uh, the application. Now, here's the, here's the two things. First of all, is that he anointed David in front of his brothers. Okay? From the very beginning, David had to learn to deal with God's work in his life in a public way. It couldn't be private anymore. You know, from here on out, it was going to be public. I don't know what the dinner table was like that night. You know, when his seven brothers got rejected and then he got anointed. I, I don't know if it was anything like Joseph. You remember Joseph when he had those dreams and his brothers hated him for it? You know, Joseph seemed to be a little cocky about it too. I don't know. Maybe David knew better when he looked up at Ilya and was like, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know. But I, but you do know that like this, it was public. And David had to learn to deal with stuff publicly. When he took down Goliath, people were praising him more than Saul. And he had to figure out how to do that. You know, and we'll get to that. When he worshipped in front of the ark as they brought it back into Jerusalem, his wife Michael was embarrassed by him and wanted nothing to do with him because he had his faith out in public. You know, when he fell, he fell in the, in the public eye. 
He got stabbed in the back by some of his best warriors. And he got completely and totally undermined by his son. You know, And all of this was in public in front of everyone else. And it starts right here with his calling where God says, we're not doing this in private, right here in front of your brothers, the ones who know you best, I'll anoint you. Figure that out now. And Samuel kind of takes off and leaves him to it. You know, Second thing to notice here is that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. That's not what it says in the NIV. That's exactly why we're using the ESV. The word here is rushed. The Spirit of God rushed upon him. As soon as he was anointed for the task, God came with speed and with power upon David in order to fulfill the task. God had a task for David, and it wasn't David's skills that made him capable of fulfilling his task. It was the power of the living God within him that gave him the ability to fulfill the task. See, here's the thing. There was many people around David who looked a whole lot more capable, and with their skill set probably were more capable. The thing that was different about David that set him apart as just an amazing person who 3,000 years ago, we look back with all those uh, multifaceted dimensions. The thing that makes him that man is not his skill skill. It's not his abilities. The thing that makes him that man is the spirit of God present within him doing spectacular things. Here's the question. Why did the spirit of God choose to rush upon him? That's the question. And there's only one answer to it. First Samuel chapter 13. First Samuel chapter 13, turn back two pages. And this is what it says. As God is rejecting Saul, This is what it says right here. He's taken the kingdom out of Saul's hands and he's given it to David. And it says this in in, uh, chapter 13, verse 14. Uh, Samuel's saying this to King Saul. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over all his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Okay, so this is the deal. He chose David for one reason, because he was a man after God's own heart. That's the only reason he chose him. It says he sought for a man after his own heart. He's like, I'm going to find a person who cares for me more than everyone else, anything else. I'm going to find him, and I'm going to anoint him, and I'm going to command him. Now, notice he has to command him to be prince over everything, right? Because David wasn't power hungry. David wasn't interested in being a king. David was having a great time taking care of the sheep, wrestling lions and bears and staring at the stars and writing songs and he was having a grand old time until God had to command him to be king. Oh, that we would have more leaders who needed to be commanded to take power and to take authority in a situation rather than the ones who were so hungry for it that they demand it and they push all the other ones aside. And where does that come from? How did that happen in David? How did he get to that place? I mean, he was called the prince because, I mean, Saul was already the king and he's being appointed right now, so he's the prince. But he's also the prince instead of the king because he realizes that God will always be the king of this nation and David will be the prince and he has to be commanded even to be a prince. What does it take to get a guy to be that humble, that contrite, that capable of carrying the power of God and wielding it? You ever seen Lord of the Rings or better yet, read the books maybe? You know, and there's this little guy Little tiny little guy is the only one who can carry the ring of power. 
You know, there's this ring of power that if you, if you wield it, you can do all sorts of incredible things with this ring. And, and every time that one of the kings or one of the wizards comes around, they see this ring. And if they're a godly king or wizard, they're like, get that thing away from me. I can't handle the power because they know what's in their heart and they know what they're going to do if they have that much power. And they're like, get that thing away from me. And then there's this one tiny little guy named Frodo who wants nothing to do with the power. All he wants to do is to get back to the Shire and hang out with his buddies and have a good time. And so God puts a call on him. The kingdom calls him to carry this ring around his neck with all this burden and to take it all the way to a place where he can destroy it so that there's no power in men again. There's only power in God. It's a picture of King David. That's what that's the picture of. Some guy who just wants to be a shepherd out there playing his songs, taking care of the sheep and enjoying the presence of the living God. But God has to command him to be a king because God needs to help everyone else know the glory and the power and the presence of the living God. Is that the only one who I can rush my spirit into is the one who yearns for me more than power. And so he finds King David, and he anoints him. Now, how did David get there? How did David get to this? I mean, he was only a little kid, and yet, as a little kid, God knew that he had a man that, he, that his heart was right. How did his heart get right? There's really only one answer that I know of to this question. The Bible doesn't explicitly say it; it's implicit throughout the entire story. We don't know much about David before this anointing, except for this: that he spent a lot of time out with his sheep on the hills, and that we have some of his writings from when he did. And those writings are sitting there when he's holding the little sheep and fighting against lion and bears with it. And eventually he stops seeing just that sheep in himself and he starts saying, you know what? The Lord is my shepherd. And in the same way that these guys don't need to be worried, I don't need to be worried. In the same way that when they fight the, when they face the bear and they can't do anything, I have to fight the bear for them. When I have faced my problems in life, I can't fight the bear. I can't fight the enemy. I can't take care of it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for my God is with me. You know, it seems like my brothers, they're the big hotshots over there, and my dad doesn't even invite me to the party or whatever, but it doesn't really matter because the Lord, he leads me beside still waters, and he's the one who takes care of me. You know, he leads me to green pastures. All I need is Jesus. That's all I need. I don't need any of this other stuff. And so when he's out there, he's not wasting his spare time. I mean, the guy didn't have money. The guy didn't have power. The guy didn't have uh, position. He didn't have recognition. He had nothing to his name. He had one resource, and that was time. And he had tons of it, tons and tons of time. And what did he do with it? He didn't sit around playing Xbox. He didn't sit around trying to figure out the next thing that he could do to have fun with. This little kid said, I want one thing and one thing alone. Give me Jesus. That's what I want. I want God. And so he'd be sitting there at night and instead of being scared as he's laying out in the stars, he'd be looking up at the stars and being like, Oh my goodness, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaim the work of his hands. And day by day it pours forth speech. And everywhere that David goes, he's looking for God. And guess what? As much as he looks for him, he finds him because God will be found by those who seek him with all their heart. And David was the picture of a man, a boy, who wanted nothing but Jesus. And what he had no idea was going on in the middle of that. What he had no idea was that God had him right now going, wax on, wax off, sand the floor, 
sand the floor, paint the fence. He had no idea that he was getting miyagied by God, that someday that he's not just alone, right? Right now he's alone, and so all he has is God. But someday he's going to have people everywhere who demand things from him and want things from him. And then he's going to have to have a relationship with God that's so rock solid that he doesn't capitulate to what Joab wants or to what Michael, his wife, wants or to what anyone else wants because he knows there's only one he can trust, the one who was there with him way back when, when nobody else was. God. That's it. In his spare time, when he could do anything he wanted, when he could have been mad about his shepherd job, when he could have been upset and just tried to squeak by, what is he going to do when no one else is looking? You know where we are right now? We've had the Wild West in the kingdom of God. We've had all that. We've had the birth of the kingdom of God. And we've had all of that. We've had the beginning of Pentecost and we've gone through all sorts of seasons. But we are right now at a place where there has been so many human solutions to human problems in the church. And God is calling again for a time and a place where he can look around and find people who care about nothing more than knowing him. And when he finds them, what he wants to do is send his spirit with power and rush upon them so that they can again lead forward what it is that he wants to do in his kingdom in this day and in this age right here and right now. And I guarantee you that the place he's looking is in a place that we're not looking, in unlikely places. And what he's looking for is the person who with their spare time, when they wake up in the morning, when they go to bed at night, when they got some downtime, what do they want to do? I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. That's it. I want to know Jesus. The early years of King David, there's all sorts of things. Man, yeah, God teaches him how to use a slingshot, you know, and it's going to come in handy, you know. God teaches him how to be a shepherd, and it's going to come in handy. God teaches him how to know the word of God. Man, is it going to come in handy. God teaches him how to wrestle bears. God teaches him how to deal with all sorts of people, and and it's all going to come in handy. But there's one thing that in the fire of loneliness and solitude out on those hills that God teaches him more than anything else, and it is to know God, heart, soul, and strength, every fiber of his being. I don't know if you've picked this up yet, but we keep mentioning this. This is personal practices in pursuit of God. Okay, this is the little booklet that we made up that's sitting out there on the Welcome Center. If you don't have it yet, grab it. This is what it's about right here is in our own personal time with God that we figure out how to pursue him. Okay, there's a free resource back there just to help us develop our own relationship with God. I have no idea what Davids are sitting in this place right now, but I know there was a bunch of them sitting in an upper room at Pentecost and God rushed on them and gave them the power to do spectacular things. And I know that he wants to do it again here at Parker Ford Church.